Okay, so today we are looking at the Catechism, um, unsurprisingly, in a course on the life of Christ. Um, but the material today, um, you know, I get different things in terms of feedback. Uh, I'm trying to be more focused on the Catechism text in what I'm doing today. Uh, I will alternate that with the next lecture, which will be kind of on the related material, but will kind of be a theological commentary on it. So a fair bit of today's lecture will be reading out block quotes from the Catechism. But we've got a couple pages of kind of introductory stuff before we do that. So what we're looking at today is, call it Society, the Common Good, and Democracy. Um, so we're in that section of the Catechism, the very large section of the Catechism, on the social doctrine of the church. Um, and so we need to have a concept of society, concept of this thing called the common good. And I want, particularly for us as Americans, to talk about democracy. Because it's very, as Americans, we think automatically of democracy when we think of anything to do with government. But actually we need to understand the, the church doesn't think that. So, let's start with the um, lecture notes I've given you there. And I refer to what I call our modern or American problem with the issues we're going to look at today. Namely, today we're considering a number of issues where it can be difficult to think as a Catholic first and as an American second. So, you know, are we American Catholics where our primary identity is being a Catholic and we're an American type of Catholic? Or are we Catholic Americans where our primary identity is being American and secondarily, yeah, I'm also a Catholic? Yeah, so we need to be Catholic first. And yes, you belong to some nation, you belong to America. Um, we should happy to be Americans, but primarily Catholic. Now, I note that um, America's in a sense, crowning glory is that she is not just one tribe or one race, but what our founding fathers called a model to the world. So I'm sure you've, you know, would have picked up in different things in history. This phrase from the Gospels, a city on a hilltop, um, that this was quoted by the Pilgrim Fathers when they set off from England to Boston. Um, John Winthrop had a famous sermon in which he said that this nation they were going to found was going to be a model to the world. It was going to be this city on the hilltop. And in the 20th century, that's been quoted again by Kennedy, by Reagan. And in the modern context, it's almost always referred to in terms of freedom and democracy. That America isn't a tribe America is, in that sense, an idea, an idea that you can export to the world. This is a new way of living that we can sell the world. But the risk to that is America can become a, a religion, a religion that is more important to us than being Catholic. So it's great to have a vision of an idea of government to export to the world, but as Catholic priests especially, our primary idea has to be the social doctrine of the church that is actually more foundational than the particular image 
um, a freedom and, a and democracy that we find in the likes of Kennedy and Reagan. Yeah, and I say that much as I might love those figures and be very proud of being an American and proud of a, a model to export to the world, but that can't be as a priest what I'm primarily about. And I have to be aware that as a priest, as a Catholic, there is more than one way of having a good government. So, back to my notes here. So today we're going to consider community, society, and government. And I say there are two factors, um, among others, but two in particular that make it difficult for us to view this objectively. And I say one is um, American libertarianism where we view all of government as at best a necessary evil. I say, in reality, the, the cry, the redcoats are coming, um, you know, is an outdated concern. But it is part of, that's, you know, the founding, um, the American Revolution. So the redcoats are coming, my lot were coming, yeah. Um, <laughs> the America's vision of government is this foreign imperial power. Um, and that all government is at best something you want to minimize and avoid. This is something deeply ingrained in the American psyche. But it isn't Catholic. Then a particular problem for us in the 20th century is that communism has given us many horrific examples of evil governments. But I say government as a concept shouldn't be judged on the basis of abuses of it. I note also that you know, now, not in the 20th century, but the 21st century, as Catholics we can have lots of fears of LGBT or whatever agenda-driven governments imposing hostile agendas, um, opposing Catholic institutions. Again, our fear of bad government shouldn't mean we're afraid of all government. Then two quotes from recent political figures, or relatively recent, Reagan's line, um, some of you will have heard, some of you, all of you were not born before he came along, but anyway, his words, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Has of you heard that phrase before in political mantras? So say so these words stand as a judgment on excessive government, government interference in people's lives, but I say they don't stand as a suitable Catholic comment on all government activity. Different politician, different agenda, Hillary Clinton's phrase, it takes a village. Um, again, a lot of you probably weren't even born when she said those words, um, but these were famous words at the time. So her book, which was of that title, It Takes a Village, envisaged government support for family needed to raise a child. But a lot of her critics, you know, particularly obviously Republican critics, said that really her policy was it takes a police state to impose the government-driven agenda that's going to indoctrinate your children. There are lots of quotes we could take from politicians recent years, but, but, but the basic point I'm trying to start with is we have in our culture, our American culture, bad associations between government um, 
and, and what's good. And, and this notion that all government is bad. And that isn't how the church thinks. So today, in looking to the catechism, we're going to try and purify our thinking to think as Catholics. So, over the page, top of page two. So, this page, I'm just outlining to you some points about the structure of the catechism in this regard. So, you know, I've made this point to you before. It's not just that the catechism has lots of random bits of teaching, but actually how the catechism is structured and what it puts before other things and how it pieces things together, this in itself teaches us. Um, so how is the catechism structured with respect to these questions we're going to look at today? Well, so the structure of the catechism has an emphasis on community. And then I repeat some things we've previously noted. So that the first chapter of the first section of the catechism's portrayal of the moral life, it started by focusing on human dignity. Christian, recognize your dignity. And now, now you share in God's own nature. The dignity of the person is rooted in the image and likeness of God. And we had kind of a whole lecture when we focused on that. The second chapter noted God is Trinity. So he's inherently communitarian. And we are in that image, so we are inherently communal. So to say, as we do say, that man's vocation to beatitude is personal doesn't mean it's individualistic. And again, in our culture, we can have this thing that it's me, my rights, um, I'm an individual. But when the catechism uses the word personal, that doesn't mean that private individual. Personal in the sense of in the image of the community trinity, that I'm made for community. Community is in the structure of my being. So Josh, can you read that for us? The social communal dimension of man is an inseparable element of morality. The catechism treat Catechism treats of person in society, authority, the common good, responsibility, and participation, social justice and solidarity, and close reliance upon gaudium et spes, and in social teachings of the church. So that's a quote from Cardinal Schoborn, who, you know, he is one of the, the editors of the catechism, and he makes the point, as I've quoted to you before, the structure of the catechism is itself teaching us. And as he's saying here, what it's teaching with respect to the issues we're looking at today is we are social, we are communal as human beings. So the chapter that we're looking at today from the Catechism, as I've then got three points with subheadings, is structured as it indicates there. The person and society 
with the subsections of the communal character, the human vocation, conversion, and society. The second section, participation in social life, authority, the common good, and responsibility and participation. And then a section on social justice, respect for the human person, equality and differences, and human solidarity. Now today we're not gonna do as much about social justice. We're gonna, because I'm having to summarize the catechism, I'm gonna look at that when we come back to some of the commandments where the social teaching of the church is more explicitly expanded at length. So we're not gonna do much on that today, but we will later. So what are we gonna focus on in this framework? Well, I've put four bullet points together at the bottom there. The significance of the common good, what's meant by this phrase, common good. The role of government, um, participation and democracy, and the family. Um, and as I say, following the catechism structure, we'll return to issues of social justice later in the course. So you're all with me so far as a kind of introduction? Okay, so kind of the last, top of page three now, these are kind of the last bits of my introductory narrative. Um, so the next couple of pages here, we're gonna be looking at the structure of society. So when the church lays it out for us, how is society structured? What does that look like? Well, we're gonna run through the bullet points on the pages that follow. Um, that's how the church thinks society is structured. Um, before we do that, I've noticed two, in a sense, opposing poles to the Catholic vision. First, as I've already mentioned, see, contrary to radical libertarianism, the church teaches, A, that man is essentially social, and B, that there is a proper role to government. It's not just that we tolerate government, but actually government is a good thing. It just has to be done right. And secondly, contrary to communism, the church teaches, A, that the individual has a value distinct from the collective. So, you know, so much of the communist horrors of the last century have been because all that's been valued is the collective. And we crush the individual in pursuit of the progress of the collective. One of the church says, no, the individual has a, a value distinct from the collective. And B, the government has only a limited and specific role. The government isn't everything. Society isn't the state. The government is a, a bit of the mechanism within society, but it isn't society. Okay, so the next couple of pages, I've got a lot of quotations from the Catechism in which I've tried to summarize together in a few pages. Um, is it okay if we kind of go around the room with us reading different paragraphs as we, um, and I've got the occasional interruption with a comment to make. 
and then maybe we can pause and whatever reflections we have to, to throw in as a group. So first, the dignity of the human person. So I note there in italics, this is the basis of all of the church's social doctrine. So what is it rooted in? What's the thing, the dignity of the human person? As I said before, in the image of God, dignity of the human person, the basis of everything. Pat, can you read the first? The person. Yeah, the person. The person represents the ultimate end of society, which is ordered to him. So, what's ordered towards what? Society is ordered to the human person, not just the human person as a tool to the benefit of society. What's the basis of human dignity? Nick, created in. Created the image of the one God, equally endowed with the rational souls. All men have the same nature, the same origin. And then, Matt, uh, Sam? Respect for the human person perceived by the way of respect for the principle that everyone should look upon his neighbor without any exception as another self, above all bearing in mind his life and the means necessary for living it with dignity. Okay, thank you. Now, differences. Um, Joe, could you read that? The differences among persons belong to God's plan, who wills that we should need one another. These differences should encourage charity. I say, I difference in wages, differences in power. These aren't inherently evil. Though such differences can become evil when the weaker are left to suffer. I remember when I first read that many years ago, it kind of startled me. I, I had this notion that somehow everybody should be the same. That isn't what the Catechism says. That isn't what our Christian tradition says, that actually it is just part of the nature of how God has made the world. Things are different, and we're different in different ways. And that that isn't necessarily a problem. It can become a problem when we neglect the needy, when we neglect when we, the rich trample on the poor. And if you have some goods, you have a duty to use those, not just for yourself. But the differences are not in itself a problem. How far should, like, should like a government take this? Should they be, like, having to support as much as they can all the poor in the world? Or should they just primarily focus on, I guess, because, I mean, inherently there is, like, a difference between people. So it shouldn't, like, go so far as to make everyone. Or identical is really what you're saying. And, and I think these are... So equal doesn't mean identical. Equal in dignity. Equal in importance. But not identical. Um, that's a good question. So we're going to come on to, later in the course, questions of what you're calling the welfare state, yes? What, um, so the church both critiques the welfare state, while also saying the state does have a duty. Um, the problem with a communist welfare state is the government takes on everything. And so I cease to be responsible for my neighbor 
because it's the government's job. So if, if somebody's starving there, the government should do something about that. Um, and I walk on by. Um, the church also says that church doctrine doesn't give us a precise social bl blueprint. Um, it gives us principles, but how those get incarnated in every society, in every moment of history, there's more than one way something can be laid out and still conform to Catholic doctrine. So, we'll come on to this in a slightly different way in our next lecture, but should cars drive on the left-hand side of the road or the right-hand side of the road? Does God, you know, God knows everything? Um, well, there's some things that actually God's left it for us to, to establish. That there are principles about human interaction, about government coordination, that traffic laws are not contrary to human nature. But that doesn't mean every detail. We can say the church says it's better to drive on the left-hand side of the road. We, you know, we always heard the quote, all men are created equal. Um, so like what you said, I think it was like you said, equal in dignity, but like difference in that ability, would that be the importance of this distinction where maybe that quote isn't qualified enough? Or Because that is often the case, like when we think all men are created equal, we are saying in some way we're implying also an ability. So what our American founding fathers meant by right. that word? I mean, those were, our founding fathers were rich men in big houses, yeah, yeah? Um, and they didn't give away their big houses after they said that. So I'm guessing by equal, they didn't mean a communist sense of equal, of everyone being the same. Well, because I, I think I read Pope Leo XIII commenting on this very thing, and he said one of his critiques was that was not qualified, and so, that's kind of the idea. Like if, if it's not qualified, then that's what we get. Right. So, and it can, yeah, and it can go wrong in all kinds of different directions. Um, let's first talk about the common good, because some of these questions we'll come back to. So, we've said there's a foundation in the dignity of the person that isn't just an isolated individual, the person is communitarian. What, what about this thing, the common good? Um, Max, can you read, read that whole section? By common good is to be understood the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. The common good consists of three essential elements respect for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person, prosperity or the de uh, development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society, the peace and uh, security of the group and of its members. State communism sees the common good as a goal. In contrast, the church says, the common good of society is not an end in itself. 
It has value only in reference to attaining the ultimate ends of the persons and the universal common good of the whole of creation. Um, and that last quote wasn't from the catechism. It, there's, some of you may have seen that there's a big document, big, a book much bigger than the catechism called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. And that pulls together quotations from all kinds of different church documents of the last century or so. Um, a worthy book to have on your shelf. Um, and I've interspersed some catechism quotes with that in our looking at social doctrine here. Uh, Luciana, could you read the next block quote? So this is still on the common good. The common good consists of three essential elements. Sorry. Oh, no. oh. First, first, the common good presupposes respect for the person as such. In the name of the common good, public authorities are bound to respect the fundamental and inalienable rights of the human person. Second, the common good requires the social well-being and development of the group itself. Finally, the common good requires peace, that is, the stability and security of a just order. It presupposes that authority should ensure by morally acceptable means the security of social society and its members. It is the basis of the right to legitimate personal and collective defense. Each human community possesses a common good which permits it to be recognized as such. It is the political community that its most complete realization is found. It is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society, its citizens, and intermediate bodies. Okay, any comments on that? So that those are a series of quotes describing this thing, the common good to us. So the I have a question about social well-being and where does like healthcare fall into that? Should be universal healthcare, especially. Uh, uh, isn't, don't you guys in the UK have that? Or like it's seen as an evil here in America that the government wants to control your healthcare? You know, so. Yeah. So clearly, the common. You've kind of leapt to the question of who's responsible for the common good. So can I put that question on hold, maybe? So in a sense, you're flagging up the question that the common good has to somehow include people's medical state, um, their, their physical health. You can't say that that somehow doesn't affect the common good. So if you have a society where everybody um, is unhealthy, that can't be a, a great common good. And you might say everyone's unhealthy because they're eating McDonald's all the time. Yeah? Um, that would be affecting the common good, not by free hospitals, but by um, unhealthy eating. So obviously health is one of the things affecting the common good. So, but, but I suppose before we look at the question, who's responsible for the common good, 
what is the common good? Sam? Can you jump back just a little bit to the quote from the Compendium of Social Doctrine? Mm -hmm. Because I'm just a little confused. It seems, I don't want to criticize it as vague, but I don't necessarily understand what it's trying to get at because I understand that the common good is not an end in itself. I'm fine with that. But then it talks about the ultimate of the person is a universal common good of the whole creation. So it's kind of like, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> They're making a distinction it seems, between the common good of society and the common good of the whole creation. And that's where I don't understand. So on one level, I think we can say this is critiquing communism, where the state and the, is the end in itself. Um, the common good of all creation only makes sense if you acknowledge the creator. But the Creator has made this world to glorify Him. If we destroy it, if we damage it, He's not glorified. So that the common good of society shouldn't be aimed at, pursued in a way that damages the, the creation. We'll come on to environmental ethics a later week is a thing in itself, but um, you know, there are lots of examples in the last century or so where a state-led government that is pursuing the common good of a locality will so exploit the resources that the generations that come after them, the creation's been so damaged, they don't get to, the later generations don't get to enjoy it. So that one society has been the common good of a particular society is treated as, as an end in itself so the end of the whole of creation is reminding us of a broader picture okay. uh, just a quick add on that it's a rather vague comment I'm wondering is if that's purposeful so that the church is free to criticize areas that What's the difference between something being vague and something only being a general principle? Mm. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is general principles are only general, but that doesn't mean they're not principles. So, part of what the church's social doctrine teaches is that she has real things to offer in terms of how to order human existence. But they are principles, they're not a precise blueprint of this is the only way human beings can live. So one of the examples we're gonna come on to quite quickly is the church is quite happy with either a dictatorship or a democracy as long as the common good is achieved. That's the measure the church puts before us. So that these aren't, and so why do we critique a particular tyrant? A tyrant is a tyrant when he's not serving the common good. 
You know the difference between a dictator and a tyrant? So a dictator rules by dictat. What he says happens. A tyrant is ruling for the sake, not of the common good, but of some private good, usually his own good. So it's not just that he's dictating, but that he's dictating for himself. And often the reason that people will elect or support some kind of random strongman dictator to come to power is they sense that actually even though he's a dictator he's going to serve their good better than the good of the tyrant before them and that's why we have revolutions and sometimes in revolutions even to allow a dictator to come in thinking that he will serve the common good better than this tyrant dictator who's there already so that the common good is the measure how's that being served so the common good um, the essentials the dignity and rights of the person so if you have a society where people's individual rights are not being acknowledged then you can't have the common good being So, you know, without getting too COVID-centric, um, this is one of the dilemmas we're in at the moment, whether the need of the health of society justifies restricting the liberties of individuals in terms of how we go about our daily living. That you can't say the common good is still functioning if the individual no longer has his civil rights, because he can't fuck. He's not flourishing, so you can't say the collective is flourishing. And in many ways, in these things, the church gives us a tool to critique something going wrong without saying, and this is the only way it can go right. So, for example, Britain, we don't have a written constitution. But we do have a constitution and a democracy, just as you do here. But it's not written. Now, does the church have an opinion on that? No. Um, the common good is what the church has an opinion on. Okay, let's look over the page. Um, Sam, can you read those three quotes on the responsibility for the common good? The common good, therefore, involves all members of society. No one is exempt from cooperating according to each one's possibilities and attaining it and developing it. The responsibility for attaining the common good, besides falling to individual persons, belongs also to the state, since the common good is the reason that political authority exists. Each human community possesses a common good which permits it to be recognized as such. It is in the political community that its most complete realization is found. It is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society, its citizens, and immediate bodies. Intermediate bodies. Intermediate bodies. Intermediate bodies is a phrase that comes up again and again in church doctrines on social teaching. So it's not just that as Catholics, we believe in the government and the individual, 
but we believe the proper ordering of society has lots and lots of different intermediate bodies. The most fundamental of those is the family. Um, the church is also an intermediate body. Then your local um, Boy Scouts. Um, you know, there are all kinds of groups, bodies that are part of the healthy functioning of the common good. A couple times there I've put in bold the reason the political authority exists. Why is there government? For the sake of the common good. That's why we have government. We don't have government for any other reason. And this is what we should hold our politicians to account for is, are they promoting the common good? So, you know, with both Trump and Biden, we get these um, criticisms that they've done deals for their family members. Well, these are not, if that's true, in as much as it's true, it's not the common good. It's the good of individuals that's being pursued, which isn't what government is about. Another phrase to draw your attention to, because it, it's not just quoted there, but comes again and again in church documents, its most complete realization. So the common good, this kind of vague thing, where do we find the common good? What, what is it realized, made concrete in? The political community. So that, what kind of crystallizes, makes specific this communal dimension, this communal interaction, the political community. But, it's only there, or should only be there, for the sake of the common good. So in as much as it gets embedded as a thing in its own right, it ceased to be what it's there for. Comments, questions, thoughts? When we're speaking about we're referring to just the good of like or like even includes morality right in terms of virtue pe right. people being good correct okay. where are you heading with that well I was going to ask because it, a lot of the some of the reasons we can rebuttal like some of the politicians or maybe a comment rebuttal is well they're not necessarily a virtuous person Right? And they're not setting that kind of example. And although this is talking about laws, and I guess that would be like the department of government is to institute laws that enable and foster the virtues. Um, if that's not being done, would we say that it's not? So like if we look at the law, like one of the questions would be like, if we look at the law of homosexuality, right? So, who's like, 2016, it was like across the board legalized, but it's not taking the, the common good. So what would we do then? Would it not be a law then, or what? That's next our next lecture. Because okay. Okay, so our next lecture, we will specifically look at laws, when a law is a real law or just 
fake law, an unjust law. Um, your criteria about virtue is a, a good one, though. It's not explicit in the church social teaching, but I think it, you don't need to push far to say it is implicit in all of that. So what does the church think human flourishing looks like? The man of virtue. So the common good that is ordered towards the flourishing of the persons within that society, if those persons are all being corrupted morally, then they might be physically wealthy, they might all have nice houses, but if they're morally corrupt, then something's not working. Government's failing in its task. So phrases like, you can't legislate morality, I think as Catholics we want to be very wary about that. That actually it is the job of government to legislate morality. Now there are lots of ways it can it's a difficult thing to do, but morality, the life of virtue, is flourishing. It's what government should be wanting to promote. I think certain legal or like putting certain laws to make to be illegal would also have worse effects on society at some points too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So a lot of things like that are easier to see in the negative. To right. say here we've got a legal structure that's not working. Here we have a legal structure that's creating wealthy but selfish individuals. Well, that isn't the common good being achieved. They're materially good, well off, but that isn't human flourishing. Okay, well, let's move on to where a fair bit of this is kind of heading as the, the background question. Um, so first I, I point out the question of the nation. So uh, I say patriotism is part of, as the Catechism puts it, the, the fourth commandment to honour your parents. So you know all of our moral obligations can be grouped into one of the Ten Commandments. So where does patriotism, patriotism? patriotism um, fit um, it's in the fourth commandment, honouring your, your parents. So quoting the Catechism, the love and service of one's country follow from the duty of gratitude um, and belong to the order of charity. And this isn't a problem for Americans usually. You are so big on your flags and whatever. That, um, but certainly from a British perspective, we're very embarrassed to be patriotic. So the thought that it's actually a, a, a duty, um, anyway, it is according to the Catechism. You should love your family, you should love your town, you should love your nation. Okay, government. So I make a few points here, but I'll, I'll run through these. First, human nature, being communal, needs authority to coordinate. Quoting, the political community and public authority are based on human nature and therefore belong to an order established by God. The Catechism says, every human community needs an authority in order to endure and develop. If you don't have an authority, you won't as a society continue. 
The purpose of government, I say, is the common good. Uh, it is the role of the state. What is the role of it? To defend and promote the common good of civil society. The common good of the whole human family calls for an organization of society on the international level as well. However, government as authority derives its authority from God. You know, there's nowhere, nowhere else authority can be legitimately derived. So if authority is legitimate, ultimately at a moral level, that has to come from God or else it's a, a fake authority. So the Catechism quotes Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So that's in our scriptures. Um, very important to remember that, particularly we remember at the time the early Christians were writing, the authorities were pagan, the authorities were persecuting them. But even so, generally speaking, the authorities were nonetheless there for the common good, serving the common good. And so they were told, as says in Peter's epistle, fear God and honor the emperor. The next bullet point, I say, Catholic doctrine permits many diverse forms of government, as long as they serve the common good. If authority belongs to the order established by God, the choice of political regime and the appointment of rulers are left to the free decision of the citizens. The diversity of political regimes is morally acceptable, provided they serve the legitimate good of the communities that adopt them. So we've got time, if we have time today, we've got a, a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. He compares uh, democracy and aristocracy and monarchy. Um, his criteria for looking at all of them is do they serve the common good? You know, having a corrupt democracy or having a virtuous king, which one's going to serve the common good? Let me move on to the subsection here, participation. So in the catechism, this is a whole category, this thing called participation. So we have society, we have the common good, we have government, um, but there's this thing called participation. Now note, the catechism does not refer, doesn't mention democracy. So if you do the, the word search on your... PDF of the Catechism, you will not find the word democracy in there. Um, nowhere. The Catechism speaks of something else. It speaks of participation. And it says, the manner of this participation may vary from one country or culture to another. I say, the goal is the advancement of the common good, not participation per se. So, yes, we want people to participate in society, and you can easily imagine democracy being one way of that happening. But that isn't the goal. The goal is achieving the common good. That's what we, we care about, because that's the flourishing of everything.
Nick, can you read those two quotations from the Catechism, both starting participation? Participation is the voluntary and generous engagement of a person in social interchange. It is necessary that all participate, each according to his position and role, and promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. Participation is achieved, first of all, by taking charge of the areas for which one assumes personal responsibility, by the care taken for the education of his family, by conscientious work, and so forth. Man participates in the good of others and of society. Any other kind of examples, suggestions, what participation looks like, or is that too self-evident? Okay. Yeah. Just trying to avoid democracy for a minute. That's right. Contributing, I mean, contributing that charities would maybe a participation. Yeah, right, right. But being a good dad, yeah. being a good mother, is participating. Um, being a good carpenter is participating. There's a pretty broad definition of participation there. that you can't have the common good being served unless you've got the people within that society participating. Um, could we say that the age of reason would be like the time when a child should start participating in society? I, yeah, I guess so. What, what are you thinking with that? I guess, like, for instance, like, what would be, like, the, the limit to how much a child should participate? Like, should a child, I mean, of course, a child cannot be doing as much as a father can, but, like, I guess at that age, the child can start participating in society to an extent, whereas the younger, there would be really no point, I guess. Yeah. I'm guessing for a lot of us, our parents taking us to things that were communal events was a big part of our own formation. Our parents and seeing our parents doing things, it wasn't just about me and about us. Um, whether it's at church, whether you know, it doesn't need to be a soup run, but, but something in the broader society. And so a child would be led in that by the parents but even with that leading is then participating. Okay, moving on. Top of page five. So I've got a, a couple of things here explicitly about democracy. Um, so I note that, um, you know, the cry of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. Um, so historically, when that cry went out, it put the revolution against the church. And so a lot of the church's history since then has been kind of reactive and defensive and rather critical of democracy because the first proponents of this agenda were cutting our heads off, yeah? Um, but that doesn't mean it's actually in itself contrary to what we're about. So see, I, democracy was initially proposed as an alternative to traditional authority and therefore seen as an enemy of the church. You know, that's kind of 
historically how that came about. But we might note, nonetheless, um, this notion of democracy came about in the West, it came about in the midst of a culture that, even as it was rejecting Christianity, was influenced and inspired by a lot of its values. Okay, participation and democracy. Pat, could you read that block quote? So this is from Pope John Paul II um, in his encyclical for Chantismus Annus. The church values the democratic system as much as it ensures the participation of citizens in making political choices, guarantees to the governed the possibility both of electing and holding accountable those who govern them and of replacing them through peaceful means when appropriate. Thus, she cannot encourage the formation of narrow ruling groups, which usurp the power of the state for individual interest or for ideological ends. Authentic democracy is possible only in a state ruled by law and on the basis of a correct conception of the human person. It requires that the necessary conditions be present for the advancement, both of the individual through education and formation and true ideals, and that the subjectivity of society through the creation of structures of participation and shared responsibility. So I note there that you know participation is being valued. Is it valued in itself or as something that furthers the common good? And similarly, democracy, well, democracy can further participation, which furthers the common good. But the democracy isn't, as the church sees it, the goal in itself. The goal is the common good. Now the church does in um, so Caritas in Veritate, that was the encyclical of uh, Pope Benedict on social teaching. He refers to democracy positively um, in the context of development. So the developing world, as we call it, if we're going to have progress development, um, he points out how democracy can help that. He says, from the political point of view, it development meant the consolidation of democratic regimes capable of ensuring freedom and peace. Says, alongside economic aid, there needs to be aid directed towards reinforcing the guarantees proper to the state of law, a system of public order and effective imprisonment that respects human rights, truly democratic institutions. Yeah. Um. We talked about this father, but one of the things that I found interesting um, in Alexis Tocqueville's take, um, when he was making the distinctions between, like, or analyzing between French and American, like, kind of approach, like the whole idea of citizenship in America, and how for somebody to to be a citizen per se it requires their activity in in society, and um, when that doesn't happen. It really it affects every everything they do. It affects their church, their families, because they're not integrating them into the into what is this thing we call America, into this thing we call um, democracy. And did he use the word participation? So uh, participation is the buzzword in the right. catechism. Uh, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Right. Okay, but it certainly seems to be yeah, saying exactly. something very oh, similar. He definitely talks about yeah. I mean. Okay, so I've been trying to outline for you some of the basic principles and how the church teaches society should be structured, what its 
based on human dignity, the common good, the role of the state, um, the church. So the church, um, the church teaches about herself, in a sense, that the church is an indispensable part of the fabric of society. So we have, in the American Constitution, a distinction between the church and the state um, that isn't the same thing as a separation. You know, there's a, a lot of our critics in this society who will want not just those to be distinct but to be opposed for society to be purified of anything to do with the church. Um, the church is, exists in a way that serves the common good and it has a relationship with the secular state. Um, Josh, can you read those two quotes? It is the church's role to remind men of goodwill of these rights to distinguish them from unwarranted or false claims. Every institution is inspired, at least implicitly, by a vision of man and his destiny, from which it derives the point of reference for its judgment, its hierarchy of values, its line of conduct. Most societies have formed their institutions in the recognition of a certain preeminence of man over things. Only the divinely revealed religion has clearly recognized man's origin and destiny in God, the creator and redeemer. The church invites political authorities to measure their judgments and decisions against this inspired truth about God and man. So, what is going to be the basis of your state laws? What's going to be the basis of how the state develops policy? Who's going to teach the state? It's the church's role to teach. The church has, on all kinds of things, stuff to say. Uh, and this is how, or one of the ways, how the church serves the common good, serves the structure of the state. Teach. Now, there's a quote next there from the Compendium of Social Doctrine. Um, Sam, could you read that to us? The church is not to be confused with the political community and is not bound to any political system. In fact, the political community and the church are autonomous and independent of each other in their own fields. And both are, even if under different titles, devoted to the service of the personal and social vocation of the same human beings. Indeed, it can be affirmed that the distinction between religion and politics and the principle of religious freedom constitute a specific achievement of Christianity and one of its fundamental historical and cultural contributions. That last sentence, there's a very interesting claim being made by the compendium. Um, so where in human history do we find the religious authority and the state authority distinct um, saying actually historically that is the contribution of Christianity that pretty much you look through human history uh, and whatever religion there was there was a, a mishmash of these two um, not two distinct things relating to each other so in the church's vision 
the church and the state are both there, are both important, both relating to each other, but different from each other. I remember as a little child asking my mother, who was more important, the bishop or the mayor? And they're just different. You know, the bishop can't decree that that hole in the road needs to be fixed. But the mayor can't decide what time Sunday Mass is going to be. Um, and you need both different roles, different fields, both in different ways serving the common good. Okay, over the page, subsidiarity. We've all heard the word subsidiarity, I'm sure. Um, uh, Drew, could you read the first bullet, two bullet points of a catechism's quote on subsidiarity? Excessive intervention by the state can threaten personal freedom and initiative. The teaching of the church has elaborated the principle of subsidiarity, according to which a community of a higher order should not interfere in the eternal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity, the activities of the rest of society, always in view to the common good. The principle of subsidiarity is opposed to all forms of collectivism sets limits for state intervention. It aims at harmonizing the relationships between individuals and societies. Luciana, could you read the next one? Certain societies. Certain societies such as the family and the state correspond more directly to the nature of men. They are necessary to men to promote the participation of the greatest number in the life of a society. The creation of voluntary associations and institutions must be encouraged on both national and international levels, which relate to economic and social goals, to cultural and recreational activities, to support, to various professions, and to political affairs. So this principle subsidiarity, that if something can function at a simple grassroots level society, an organization, then a higher society shouldn't be interfering. So if the Cub Scouts are running themselves just fine, the government shouldn't be interfering. But, you know, who's going to decree the standards of health in the toilet, in the, you know, the toilets in the Cub Scout hut? Um, that there's a role for the higher authority, but it shouldn't usurp the legitimate running as much as it's able to do its own job of the lower society. So that the church and the principles of subsidiarity believes in the grassroots up rather than the other way around, that it starts at the top.
Okay, the last pivotal example for us to have and that is very important in terms of subsidiarity is the role of the family. And this is what the church is saying when we think of the structuring of society. So some doctrines will talk about the dignity of the human person being the foundation, others, and it's not a contradictory focus, but it's a, a different phrasing. We'll talk about the, the family as the original cell. Uh, Max, can you read the first bullet points? The family is the original cell of social life. It is a natural society in which husband and wife are called to give themselves in love and in the gift of life. Authority, stability, and a life relationship within the family constitute the foundations for freedom, security, and fraternity within society. The family is a community in which, from childhood, one can learn more values, begin to honor God, and make good use of freedom. Family life is an initiation into life in society. The political community has a duty to honor the family, to assist it, and to assure especially the freedom to establish the society, to have children and bring them up in keeping with the family's own moral and religious convictions. The protection of the stability of the marriage bond and the institution of the family. The freedom to profess one's faith and to hand it on and to raise one's children in it with the necessary means and institutions. The right to private property, to free enterprise, to obtain work and housing and the right to emigrate. In keeping with the country's institutions, the rights to medical care, assistance for the aged and family benefits. The protection of security and health, especially with respect to dangers like drugs, pornography, alcoholism, etc. And the freedom to form associations with other families and so have representation before civil authority. And following the principle of subsidiarity, larger communities should, not, should take care not to usurp the family's prerogatives or interfere in its life. The human person needs life in society in order to develop in accordance with its nature. Certain societies, such as the family and the state, correspond more directly to the nature of man. Um, and I'm not going to elaborate on it, but... Um, The last bit, and almost the opposite of subsidiarity, is the need for an international dimension to human existence. Um, the, in human, the individual doesn't exist alone, the nation doesn't exist alone. Even as we're looking at the common good of societies ordered to the goal of the glory of creation, giving glory to God, but the international community um, too. So numerous church documents highlight that man's nature as a social being includes not merely his family, town, nation, but the whole human family at an international level. It should be noted, however, that the international community, as a phrase in church documents, is not to be automatically identified with either the United Nations or the International Monetary Fund or the G8 or the G20. Um, so ever since the United Nations has been formed, you've had different popes calling for international cooperation, but that never means the United Nations per se is 
the world government. Um, but it would be an inauthentic vision of human existence to not have this international dimension. says that that's not the preferred relationship between church and state or like how is that what, like what's the question sorry like what is the relationship between church and state to that regard you know does it is it asking for churches you know call for authority over the state in a lot of traditional circles you get that way right so um the church doesn't give a single answer to that question is one way of answering it. So I guess the one model is what we call the confessional state, where the nation is Catholic, the monarch is Catholic, the law of the land represents, articulates the Catholic church. Um, that is a model, but historically that's often not worked out too well for us. Um, many occasions when the common good even if the church hasn't been served well by that model um, in the democratic model as articulated in part in that church document but other church documents too you have a relationship between the church and the state the state is inspired by the church but the state also has a freedom from the church and different individuals have the freedom in conscience to follow their own religion and the church doesn't give a single model for how that is to play out the, the what are sometimes called the paleoconservative so the old conservative critiques of um, the modern set up would point out that you haven't yet got an example of a non-confessional state where the Catholic Church has worked out too well. So the neocon position, as it's sometimes called, says, uh, and we take inspiration from John Paul II, that the dignity of the human person, the democracy and participation, um, capitalism as furthering the economic flourishing of the individual, um, the, all of these are, uh, are mixed together. That's the neocon version uh, agenda. The paleocon version says, well, actually, that just hasn't worked out yet. Uh, as a coherent package um, and they would say it, it has inherent problems in itself that the state can't coherently be separate from the church but the church herself doesn't quite say that okay so today has been a summary lecture pulling together various things 
Um, I've tried to root ourselves in the catechism by reading lots of bloke quotes from the catechism. What is the vision the church has of society? The dignity of the human person. The human person is not an individual, but is communitarian, so that society belongs to the discussion from the very beginning. That we can measure things by the common good of society that has to be ordered towards the flourishing of the persons within it. That that has many intermediary bodies, the original cell being the family, the church being a pivotal part of that in terms of being the inspiration of the moral life of the nation. Um, and that the participation of the people in life, in the common life, is essential for that flourishing of the common good.